Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This is episode 111 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with author Jenny Rose Carey all about flower combinations. The plant profile is on Rose Campion, and we share what's going on in our garden as well as some of the upcoming local gardening events. This episode, we're joined by author Jenny Rose Carey. She was a previous guest on the Garden DC podcast way back in July 2020 on episode 18. We discussed with her all about her new book on shade gardening at that point. And today we're discussing her latest book, The Ultimate Flower Gardener's Guide and specifically Flower Combinations. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Kathy. I appreciate you having me on again. I can't wait to discuss flower combinations with you. I mean, I'm just flower crazy, and I know you are too. Oh, yes. (laughs) As are many of our listeners. We could probably talk a, a second about what has changed since July 2020, the last time we spoke to you. Back then, you were with PHS, the Pennsylvania Hort Society. Are you still with PHS? No, I I actually left, uh, you know, like many people left their, their jobs or changed jobs during the pandemic. So I left PHS during the pandemic and I was writing this, The Ultimate Flower Gardener's Guide. And I really basically needed more time and more mental space and I had to be busy growing all these flowers to take the photographs too so I did leave I still love PHS but I'm not no longer working for them so you are speaking freelance writing what else are you up to these days well I'm promoting my book um, but then I'm going to be writing another book so I, I really enjoy the book writing because um, I'm not known for my brevity. So writing magazine articles doesn't really suit me. I I like my (laughs) 91,000 words in the book and 600 photos. So yep, I'm a a loquacious, put it that way. (laughs) I didn't realize 91,000 words. Wow. I know it was meant to be less. Don't tell anybody. That's a secret. So just having submitted my second book to the publisher, I know exactly what you're talking about on that process and how it can be really all time consuming and take you away from everything else. And 600 photos, I congratulate you on that as well. Oh, thank you very much. So the the interesting thing is, as you know, with your speaking engagements, Kathy, um, you know, when you go to these places, people take you to their nice gardens and you can photograph, you ask whether you can photograph and they always say yes, um, they're delighted to have you photograph and public gardens, private gardens. But because of the pandemic, I wasn't, you know, I was doing Zoom lectures like you. So you really don't get out and about to take the photos in other people's gardens. And obviously I've got a backstock of photos over the years, but when you have got a an idea in your mind for the book, you're really photographing for that book. So I ended up having to take uh, pictures mostly in my garden, unless I'd already got the photos. So we had to grow the 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 flowers, you know, and then set up the photo shoot there and and do it in the garden. So pretty much, I think everything that you see in the book there's 175 genera so different genus of uh, genuses if you want to say like that but they're all from the garden so I'm writing about flowers that I grow myself that's amazing and for those listeners the majority are in the mid-atlantic U.S. And this book will be a tremendous resource for us because if you can grow it outside of Philadelphia, where you're located, most of the rest of the region can grow it as well. So maybe we should talk a little bit about your garden and where it's situated, the type of soil you have, and maybe your hardiness zone as well. That sounds a good idea. So I am about 16 miles north of Philadelphia. So I'm in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and I have a nice, uh, it's actually really a, a lovely clay loam, but I have worked on the soil. And as you know, the more you 
work on it, the better it is for whatever you want to grow. So it's a clay loam soil and it is, it's quite free draining, but I, because I'm on top of a hill, but I do have low lying areas. I'm a zone really six, seven. I think zone six is four miles away from me and it says seven, but believe me, I am not really a zone seven all the time. You know, next to my house is zone seven. The rest of the garden, the wind, wicked wind blows along there and I'm definitely a zone six. So six, seven and really not bad soil, but I do work on it. I either add tons of my leaf mold for the things that need a bit more moisture and then I add tons of grit and gravel and sand and all the other things to help it and raise up the beds if they are plants that need more drainage. So I, I, I make my own little microclimates for the different flowers. If they're not happy, I try and amend it. And how long have you been gardening there? I've been here 25 years, which uh, I was just thinking this morning, how did that get to be 25 years? I'm sure we all have the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's interesting because there really was nothing in the way of herbaceous plants. I can list them on my hands. I mean, it was the old orange daylilies, which I still love, the violets in the lawn, some lilies of the valley. You know, it was it was that sort of level of herbaceous plants when I got here. Some lovely old trees, uh, some of which blew down in the tornado that we had from Hurricane Ida last September, but really not much in the way of herbaceous. So, and and now when you walk around the garden, oh, you just get, it's like so many things because I really, it is funny uh, thinking about it actually, Kathy. I do want to grow everything. I want to try and work out how to grow everything. I don't know why, but I, I just like, you know, if I haven't grown it, I'm curious. Maybe I'm curious gardener, something like that. I think a lot of us are the same way, Jenny. I think a lot of us, if we haven't tried something or we see it in somebody else's garden and we're like, oh, I didn't know I could grow that here, then we want to try it out. Or maybe we want to try out a different cultivar yes. of something we've had in the past. Like, yeah. I know Gumfrena especially is one that I was like, mm, whatever, you know, <laughs> for yep. years. And then in the last couple of years, I've just gone Gumfrena crazy. There's just some... <laughs> great introductions and some beautiful ones yeah and it makes people don't realize it makes a wonderful cut flower and you can even dry it if you mm-hmm. hang it upside down but it's it's an interesting so for people that don't know it has a very round headed flower so it's it mixes and mingles very nicely with some of the other more daisy shapes and you know loose shapes in arrangements particularly towards later on in the summer because it's an annual mostly for our our listeners I suppose. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into some of those shapes and colors and combinations in a bit but first I did want to say the book is from Timber Press and it is gorgeous. It's not a hardcover but it is packed with beautiful, beautiful photos. I think they made a choice, Kathy, about the, it's a soft cover to keep the price down because there's enough in here to keep, you know, gardeners that have been gardening with flowers interested and learn new things. But it's also very accessible, I think, for the beginning flower gardener. So there's a deliberate choice with the shade, glorious shade and with the ultimate flower gardener's guide to keep it at lower price point so it's it's really meant to be accessible so you know and I, I'm sure you don't mind if it gets beaten up as long as it gets used really oh I forgot to tell you the name of my garden the na- name of the garden is Northview and it's a interesting old property uh, from 1887 and it has four and a half acres so I have a lot of space to try things out Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have the luxury of space to, you know, be growing all these different varieties and have them side by side and be able to trial them and compare them. And of course, for the book, photograph and chronicle them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, some people would say luxury of space. Others will be like, ah, help, because I grew up in England with cottage gardens and, you know, we have small spaces and believe me, they're packed full of flowers. But, you know, I think in a way, the more space you have, the harder it is to make it look floriferous or flowery because you almost have to choose areas to pack them in so that it looks like something and you can't really spread them out all over because otherwise 
you know, it doesn't look like you've got any flowers at all. So, you know, there's pros and cons of large and small spaces. And believe me, I know exactly how to garden in a small space because uh, that was all the gardens when I was growing up. So it doesn't mean you need a lot of space. And a lot of them can be grown in containers or in, in flower beds or whatever. Yeah, you do address container gardening and some of the small space gardening and how to install and have them side by side. But one of my favorite points early on in your book that you make is that color and how you view flowers is highly personal. And so each of us kind of views things through our own lens, so to speak. And I think one of the examples you give is like a bright red flower next to a peach flower, which some people would love that combination and other people would find that combination kind of off-putting or glaring. I know it is. So it is interesting because, you know, both of us have been in this uh, industry for a long time and, and it's sort of like you get to the point where you cannot decide whether people are going to like it or not. But that is what makes it so wonderful because you go to one person's garden and they they've got the red and the peach next to each other and they're just so happy with it and then the next person was like oh that's disgusting but that is that you know there's so much choice that it allows us to show our creativity in our gardens so it's it's really a you know not all of us can be painters or poets or you know great musicians but uh, for many many people that I've met over the years their their garden is a, a really uh fulfilling creative space where they can it's like your playground and you can just make it however you like it Mm -hmm. and it's definitely a personal expression yeah so you start off with your flower wish list Um, so you definitely when you have this book open you want to have a notepad or something nearby to somewhere to take notes on and start that wish list because almost every page you're going to write something down and why do you recommend having a flower wish list Well, you know what was interesting? So I sort of went back to basics when I was writing this book because I realized, you know, everyone comes to gardening at various with various knowledge bases. And, you know, some people had grandparents they gardened with or parents or an auntie or a neighbor and others have really no idea. So it can be a little overwhelming. But if you are always guided by what you like, your garden will turn out to be how you like it. it might not be the first year, probably won't be the second, but you, as you garden, you continue to tweak it and add to it and, you know, basically make it more to your liking. So by writing down, and I, we've sort of got out of the habit, and it could be on your phone, it could be on your notes section or your computer or whatever, but somehow a little notebook that you carry around with you always suits me. But I always you know, when you go to visit a garden or particularly a public garden where everything is labelled, there's often one thing that catches your eye and then you see it everywhere and you think, I just really love that. And so you write that name down and then when you go to the garden centre next time, you can look and see, you know, if you can find it or maybe get a bit from one of your friends, you know, dig up a bit, ask them first. I always say that, but it's sort of like, you know, (laughs) but it's sort of with the flower wish list, um, it allows you to keep track of those names. And I do do it in the book by Latin name. And that you know, it's like might get criticized for that. But basically, when you bo- it boils down to it, if you know the Latin name, you can buy exactly the same thing. If you know the common name, you might get something entirely different. So your wish list can be in common names, but then try and find out from the book what its Latin name is and check that against the plant tag. Because I've had people, you know, common names vary so much from area to area and from country to country. So it's it's really difficult to go by common names. I mean, every there's there's lots of fun names for things like bachelor's buttons or cornflower or whatever, but you might be meaning a different thing. But the wish list allows you to have one place where you think, oh, I love foxgloves. I, I really have to remember. And it's it sort of then allows you to start categorizing things by time of year or by color or whatever other things you want to do. I mean, if you're very spreadsheet oriented, do a spreadsheet. That might be your your best way to keep your wish list. But somewhere, just keep an idea of what things you've seen that you love and uh, then start uh, compiling them into your flower bed. And you made a good point in there about it's not going to be instant. It might take 
two years, three years till you start to see the fruition of your ideas. And then it's not done. You're no. <laughs> keep, it's just not like, ooh, it's, I baked a cake and it's done. And, and then we get to eat the cake. It's never like that in gardening, right? It's always a continual addition, subtraction. Oh, I like this. This is starting to take over. So I need to take this out. So there's always that continual process. I know. And I think beginning gardeners may find that a little frustrating sometimes, mm-hmm. but you know, going back to that creativity and analysis. Okay, let's take Monet. Let's take him painting water lilies. So he started off painting one water lily picture, and then he painted another water lily picture and another one. So basically, you know, he was never finished with painting water lilies. And with gardening, you're not really. It's it's not a. There's no end result. It's a process. So. If you enjoy gardening, as particularly flower gardening that we're talking about, basically you will look at your garden after you've added it and added the different things. And then you will really say, "Okay, looking at my garden, I like that a lot. I need to add a couple more of those. I need a little more of pick a color blue in amongst here. And in that same notebook, you can then say, you know, get more larkspur seeds and then it will allow you to remember to plant the larkspur in the fall so that it will get a head start and then plant a bit more in the spring. So it's sort of like a planning notebook it ends up being for me. And I just have a, you know, like a ring notebook and then I take it out with me and I have a a list of seeds to buy. I have a, you know, an ongoing list of potted plants that I'd like to buy or bulbs that I'd like to buy. (laughs) My problem is, it's like your my eyes are bigger than my stomach because I wouldn't have enough money to buy all the things I really wanted. So then you have to go through and prioritize and say, OK, I'm going to buy 10 of those, not 20. And I'm not going to buy that one this year, but I'll buy it next year. You know, so it allows you to to have a little dose of realism, which I hate. But there we go. <laughs> Yeah, I think all many of us can relate to that, especially the analogy of eyes bigger than our <laughs> stomachs, because we want it all, right? We see it and we, we want do. it all at once. We and do. You do. And then the book, you do make some food and cooking analogies, like we're yes. treating this as recipes and we're treating it as cooking, like add a little more spice to this, subtract that, different quantities that you might use when you redo your recipe, like the next time you try out a dish. You're like, well, maybe I'll put more cinnamon in it or maybe I'll put more cardamom in it. Um, So that's I thought that was really interesting and apt analogy. Yeah, I actually came to that realization because so many people were doing cooking during lockdown. And I'm like, gardening's like this. It's just like that because, you know, you take somebody's recipe and, you know, that recipe might be a combination that you see at, say, somebody's garden that you go and visit. Or it might be in a book or it might be in a magazine. And you say, oh, look, they have foxgloves growing in amongst their peonies. Oh, that looks nice, you know, because you've got the spike of the foxglove and then the rounded heads of the peonies. Maybe I can do that. So it's like taking a recipe. And if you notice, Kathy, in the middle of the book, the all of the plant portraits they have a, have pictures up at the top of the page, the name, and then the basic details, and then just enough about them that you can say, yes, that's for me. I can grow that in my soil or my conditions to give you the answer as to whether it's your type of plant. And then if it's not, you move on and you just, you know, basically go through and say, oh, that's how you grow that one. You know, oh, that's an annual. I'm either going to have to find it as a little plant or I'm going to grow it from seed. So it gives you an idea of how to add these things to your garden as well as whether you like them. And you spoke of, you know, the tall with the rounded. And I think your first definitions when you're talking about combinations are the flowers and inflorescences shape, if I can say that. <laughs> inflorescences. Inflorescences, yeah. It's plural. Uh, shapes. So I guess we don't want to have all daisy types, all open-faced daisy types in a bit. We don't want to have all spiky, tall things. So we want to have some type of texture and differences to guide the eye. Or what is your principle when it comes to combining shapes? So going back to how I use my garden here at Northview as my playground and my testing site, what we found out by looking at people's reactions to my flower beds 
was the, the reactions to the colours differ. And of course, I love pink, so there's way too much pink for some people. But, you know, the reactions to the colours differ. But in general, people will look at a bed that has a mixture of shapes and textures of the, so basically an inflorescence is like, if you imagine a foxglove, each individual flower going up the stem combines to make an upright inflorescence or on an, on an allium, many of the onion relatives, they have a round, but there's lots of individual bits that make up that round shape. So what people tend to like, and I don't think there's much disagreement on this amongst gardeners, there probably are, you know, to mix up the shapes of those flower heads in a flower bed throughout the seasons, which is no mean feat to do. But if you, you know, always pick, uh, daisies are really popular. And by the, I'm not dissing daisies because we need them in our gardens but by the fall if you notice between the asters and the rudbeckias and the echinaceas and uh, the shasta daisies and everything so there's a preponderance of them by the fall but mm -hmm. it, then you add in you know a bit of solidago you know some maybe even some gladiolus or something you know that has a real spike in there and it sort of gives it a little bit more interest and sort of as your eye goes along from left to right along your bed or looks at your container, you know, it gives it places to, to go rather than just like one big mound of chrysanthemums and shasta daisies. So it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. And I think the people that are really creative will get that right away. And it might be something you work up to. You might start with just, I'm just going to go with these colors and then work on the shapes later and after the shapes of the flowers themselves you talk about the plants the yes. overall plant shape so there could be mounding type plants that are low that you might want to put at the front of a border because they would get lost obviously in the middle or the back and then there's your tall big types like a joe pie weed where if you put that in the front, that's all you're going to get, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's really basically common sense. I mean, you know, you don't want them all lined up like a stadium seating, but you you do want to be able to see through to the back. So I call call the little ones at the front tiny treasures, and they definitely have to be along that front, you know, like a, a little viola or, a, you know, a Johnny jump up or something like that, or the low adjuratum that's really good at the front. So, you know, finding a few little treasures to, to tuck at the front. And then I actually divide it by mid front, mid back, and then back, even in a fairly narrow flower bed, because there are a whole bunch of plants that are sort of like in that 12 to 18 inch range that make a really nice next layer in front behind the tiny treasures. And then if you, then there's a sort of the three foot ones that, that can be the next layerish back and it can be ins and outs it's not as i said it's not like seats in a row mm -hmm. it's more like think of it more like swoops and waves so if you imagine your flower bed as the shore and then the waves coming in on that shore and if you can arrange your things more like the swoops of the waves coming into from the ocean then it actually is really much more graceful so you'll bring that mid back a little bit further forward in one bit and then swoop it back and then you'll let your tiny treasures creep back a little bit in one bit so it sort of has a, your eye tends to look at a border if especially if it's a long one from left to right like you'll be reading so it really gives your eye some motion both front and back and up and down along the back so something like a an airy thalictrum or it might go with your joe pieweed or a verona castrum which is a lovely native um, plant with tall spiky sort of candles actually so you're just you're just trying to think does this look pleasing to me what is missing? Do I need more height? Do I need, you know, different texture, maybe like a things like a red hot poker or something like that, which is maybe a little more unusual. Maybe people in this area haven't seen it as much, but has strappy leaves or, you know, as I said, something like a gladiolus. They are making their their comeback because they're just mm -hmm. unusual and they're great cut flower if you want to do them in a row. You know, so that's really it. Just sort of try and mix it up look at the textures, look at the uh, shapes of the overall plant and, you know, just play with it. And, and also, don't be afraid to move things. That's the other thing. Some people think that it's in the ground, that's it. But 
as long as you're not in a drought, spring and, and fall are the best times to move things. But to be honest, if, it, if, it, if you can water it in afterwards and keep it watered, most things you can you can do throughout the summer. I wouldn't pick August, but, you know, it's probably a bit hot now. Definitely. And I love that undulating kind of look that you described where it's coming in and out and the ebb and flow of the tide almost. We can call it yeah. like a tidal flower bed. Oh, there we go. I think that's good. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And a good deal of your book is about the flower colors themselves and the combinations that we can talk about next in coloring. But I thought one of your best points was that colors change. So I just was talking to a beginner gardener yesterday who was dismayed that their mop head hydrangea that they bought with all big blue flowers, some of the flowers were starting to fade to green and they thought that the the plant was getting sick or uh, was damaged. And I'm like, no, that's the natural progression of the flower as it goes. So that's the true, not for just hydrangeas, but you also give an example of some of the daffodils that start off bright pink or peachy kind of orangey pink. And then they kind of fade to almost that like ethereal see-through, I call it like that um, eggshell or or seashell type color. Yeah, I know. And I'm glad you mentioned about that because I think that we are maybe too controlling with many things in our lives and you know I'm speaking personally right now but you know when when it comes to gardening you have to really learn to relax and let nature take its course and and then eventually after the flower has been pollinated and basically we're flower gardening for pollinators when it boils down to it which you know as I'm sure you've had many guests talk about pollinators but no without the flowers the pollinators have nothing but after it's been pollinated then the flower switches from being its pretty pretty self to to going to making seed mode which is great as a gardener because then you can collect it or sprinkle it around in place but it's not staying the same even with some of the flowers you get like a foxglove again because it happens to be on the front cover and I'm obsessed with them but they start opening and then gradually it opens further and further up the stem so you know you go one week and look at it and then a few days later it'll look slightly different and a few days later it'll look slightly different both color and how many flowers are open and which flowers are open as an observant gardener and one who likes to take photos you know I find that endlessly fascinating. And I'm a big fan of those plants that give you different colored flowers on the same plant. So like the rose mutabilis, or it could be even cosmos where one throws up a pale shell pink and then there's a dark pink following that. Um, So that gives you almost endless combinations with those. Oh, I know. I, I just, there's so much, I mean, you know, there's so much in the way of our area. I just I just have to say this mid-Atlantic area, obviously coming from England, we can grow a lot of things there. And I was just there. So, but it's this area, we can grow a lot of things. It's just, you just have to persist and ask your friends. If, if you have gardening neighbours, that is your best resource or joining a garden club, whether it's an online one or a, a, you know, a one that's local to your area, because that's where you're going to get your questions answered that really suit your soil type. You know, if you're down at the shore, you're obviously going to have a sandy, more free draining soil. So walk around your neighbourhood, see what's growing really well in uh, your neighbour's gardens. And if they, if you don't know what it is, just knock on the door and ask them or knock on the gate or wait till they're out in their garden but people and in our gardening community they really do want to share their knowledge and that's why all of these communities are are really so much fun Mm -hmm. gardeners are so generous with their time and knowledge and even with their plants a lot of the time i know so in the colors you're an admitted pink fiend you love pink in the garden and I'm a big purple and and green fan I love that combination but what's your favorite things to combine with your pinks well I think that I actually I love to add in a little splash of white because it sort of freshens it all up and I do like to I do like to add in some purples along with the pinks and 
sometimes even a blue. There's a sort of light blue. There's a new salvia that I've been loving. I think it's crystal, crystal white, I think it might be, but it's a hardy, hardy salvia. I might have got the name wrong, Kathy. I apologize. But if you don't grow hardy salvias, there's a there's a good group for you to get to know because they are really, you can cut them back and they have a whole nother flush. Is that the salvia azuria? Yes, I think that is, you know, I, I do, uh, there's a really nice combination right now that is very jazzy with some oranges. And apparently I was just reading on the plane yesterday that this is, even though it's not the Pantone color of the year, which is a very peri, like a periwinkly violet color, which you would love. They're saying that orange is popping up and I think it's a very optimistic, bright, cheerful color. So I actually have been loving bright pink with bright orange, which is just like, oh my goodness, I didn't think I would possibly love that. That Those two colors together there was a an exhibit at the Chelsea Flower Show this year that had those two colors in and I happened to have bought a dress that was those two colors and it was just like oh wow I actually really love this and so that was my most but there you go see how long I've been gardening for decades and you know here I am having this this new uh color love that goes with my favorite color but just brings out a really zingy combination so you know I think that's why I love gardening you just like oh look a new a new cultivar a new plant that I can grow from seed what fun that's my that's my latest love I think yeah I agree that almost bright neon orange and pink that magenta pink together is just really sizzling combination and I am to seeing a resurgence of orange, not yeah. just in the garden, but elsewhere. It's it's really interesting that people are really embracing orange for some reason. It was so out for some time that it was just like orange, ugh, mm-hmm. you know, but now I just watch this space because I think it's, it's maybe going to be, uh, you know, in housewares and all the other things much more. Mm-hmm. I also think, you know, dahlias and marigolds, yes. something about those colors and that cheerfulness, people are just gravitating to cheerful. They just want that, you know, all out joy. You can't yes. say a lot of things about orange, but you can't say it's somber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely not somber. And and zinnias as well. I mean, mm-hmm. look at, at the popularity of zinnias. You know, there's such a great cut flower. And, and I also would encourage your listeners to really, if you have flowers, just even if you can cut one and put it in a little bud vase base and sit it on your kitchen windowsill or beside your desk or your bed or something, just it allows you to look at it in much more detail and see the subtle shading and see what color the center is and look at the reverse of the petals you know it's just it, it's a real joy just to almost contemplate a flower and by bringing it inside you can sit and look at it you know if you're even with your cell phone you can take really nice up close photos of it and blow it up and look at it and it, it's just I, I think there's something about that whole reconnecting with nature that we are seeing during the pandemic as people just looking and seeing what is important to me and what is important in life. And to be honest, flowers really kept me going during the pandemic and and just, just investigating them a little bit more and just enjoying them, I suppose, really. Yeah, beauty is so necessary to the enjoyment of life. And I will say that, you know, a lot of people poo-poo social media, the evils of social media, but (laughs) one gift that Instagram has given me is just what you described, is that I'm taking more close-ups of flowers than I ever was before, thinking I might share them on Instagram, and then when I blow them up and increase them and look at them on my phone, it's super close-up. I am amazed at some of the things that I never noticed or saw on a flower before. Sometimes you're seeing like just the little speckling at the base of the petals where they meet the flower down below. It's amazing what you can see in some of those digital close-ups. I know. And everyone has it right at your fingertips. I mean, it used to be there were photographers and there were no people who didn't photograph things. But now we all have that at our fingertips all the time. And I think that's why 
people have loved. I mean, if you if you love flowers on Instagram, come come look at my flowers because I, I I'm a, a flower lady. So you know, it's, there's a lot a lot in there. So and so next in your book, you talk about the garden throughout the year and you highlight the various seasons, not just the four seasons, but break them down a little more. And what we're experiencing now is the section you have on high summer. Yep. And what I enjoyed in that is you have two full pages of one is annuals and tender perennials and bulbs for high summer. And then the next page is your favorite hardy perennials of high summer. So you can compare those and contrast them and pull from those when you want some filler in that season. Cause we all experience, right. Those gaps in our combinations where it's kind of like a lull. I'm thinking of like beginning of June is kind yes. of usually that yes. lull. And then maybe August into September is another lull. Yep. So that that is very true, Kathy. Good point. So what I felt with the seasons, I'm a very, very seasonal gardener. And I think you have to be if you're, you know, it's almost like a necessary thing because it, unless you've got plastic flowers, they're not going to flower the whole time, you know. So that is what I designed those for. So if you are looking at that and, and saying, oh, I, what what should I have in my garden to now just to bring me more more joy and more filling in? So it really is. And some of them you won't be able to get right away. But because gardening is all about planning and that's why you have your little notebook and your wish list, then you'll say, OK, looking at the high summer annuals, Cleome, which is the spider flower. That is a great one. It's out in my garden right now and it fills in and bees love it. And so it has many different things. But you you look at that page and it'll tell you, oh, right, maybe I'll have some more Celosia next year. You may be able to go and buy it as little plugs or you, you may have to be planning ahead. So that's really what I'm trying to get people to think of with that. And I think also to relish those changes of the season and, you know, realize that things come and go but that's okay the other one i will point out since you raised the those gaps so the more you can have plants that have different life cycles so in the book i go through there's obviously perennials they will bloom at one particular time of the year and you need to know when that is if you're going to have things out all the time then you have annuals which are cool season annuals which bloom really mostly early in the year and by now they're not doing so well because the days and the particularly the nights are too hot and then you get your warm season annuals which are zinnias and things like that and celosia and cosmos that they really carry you actually they carry you through that bit which could be a bit of a gap in September because they're going on as long as you deadhead those and keep them well watered and, and fed if your soil needs that they'll carry you on right through to the fall and things like dahlias or dahlias definitely they don't stop in September and then your other gap that you were mentioning which I refer to as the June gap sometimes is for me in my garden filled by this class of flowers that most Americans don't grow which is called a biennial and it's one of those ones that it, because they are a little tricky to get going in your garden, people tend to forget about them. But those are things like our regular foxglove, the digitalis purpurea, things like sweet william, honesty or silver dollar is another one. And those ones, they, they have to be sown now, have to make a basal foliage during the rest of this year, and they'll come through the winter and then flower right when you the spring bulbs are going away and that is the the one that i would say to flower gardeners if you are really seeing that sort of gap between when your daffodils tulips and everything finishes and before your annuals really get going it's having more biennials and more cool season annuals like larkspur love in a mist those sort of ones that come on early and if you live around where kathy lives in dc you can do a, what's called a fall sowing of those and get the little plants to overwinter and they'll come on strong early. And that's really what fills in that gap. That was rather a long answer. I apologize. But that's that's really 
how I fill that gap in my garden. Oh, that was perfect. And I would say one of the other things to get you from season to season might be some non-flower interest, your your foliage, of course, and maybe, you know, a painted trellis or something else or a vine. I find clematis. Oh, yes. The flowering vines can, can kind of be that bridge as well. And then going into fall into winter, leaving those interesting seed heads up like on your alliums and your Cleome and the Gumfrena we talked about. But one aspect of combinations we haven't talked about is when you are layering for time and something doesn't come up when it's supposed to, and I'm putting air quotes around supposed to, like when the book, or not necessarily your book, but when the plant tag or when the seed pack said that this was an early June bloomer and it doesn't bloom till July, how do you bridge that gap? Oh, well, that is a tricky one because, you know, obviously gardening is, is, uh, is fraught with fraught with unexpected things but you know it's you know what I would say quick trip to the garden center find something that's blooming and pop it right in no that's I mean seriously that's when when you know especially like when you've got people coming over or something there's several things that I will do I do go to the garden center and say okay instant gratification here we come but I also might go to the hardscape thing and find a you know like a ceramic ball or a you know an interesting flower pot or something like that and just sit it right in there and you can actually if you have something else that's potted you know that's coming that's you have sitting you know somewhere else you can actually pop the if it's a nice pot sit it right in the flower bed Mm -hmm. and people do that with things like lilies if if you have trouble growing lilies in the ground uh, you can actually grow them in a pot and then you just don't take it out of the pot you just sit the lily right there in in its pot in the flower bed and the the other thing is you can hide the pot if you don't like it if you've got things like cat cat mint or something like that that you can just sort of nestle it into the middle of the cat mint and you hardly see the pot you know if if it's a plastic one or something that you don't like so uh, I just add something else in I have I do have a lot of what is that word chechkis I can never think how to spell that one (laughs) yeah that's not an English word, really. Uh, I didn't grow up with that word, but I love it. It's one of my favorite words because I have a lot of those like little uh, frog, you know, ceramic frogs and things like that. So if, if something hasn't come up out with, you know, I go in the shed, find a couple of things that I like, you know, something on a stick or something. It's, it's That's usually my go-to. Yep. A little birdhouse or something else nestled in there is always nice. And I was going to say that I think was my favorite part of your book is where you talk about prepping for a garden visit. So all of a sudden you've got people coming over and you're like, ah, what am I going to do? There's some blanks in this border or this isn't looking as good as it could. So you kind of have a hit list of how to prep for that. Yeah, I know. And it always helps. So the other thing I would say to your listeners is, you know, when you're looking after your flower bed, do little and often. I mean, if you're out at work in the day, make it part of your routine, come home, get your glass of your favorite beverage and just go and be with your garden every night, every other night, whatever else you've got going on. If you've got, you know, other responsibilities like kids and pets and things, I understand. But, you know, for for me now, my kids are all left home. You know, I like to just as the heat of the day is going away, get a nice glass of something and just walk around the garden with a pair of snips and you just basically do a little gentle deadheading, pull out anything that's over and done with, snip some anything that's brown and over with, you know, and, and just just interact with the garden. Realize that something you planted really could do with a drink of water. You know, it's sort of like it's part of that enjoyment through process, I think, that I really love. And just little and often, then it doesn't become one big chore. You, you know, you see a little weed or something before it gets to be a big weed that's about to flower and you know it's it's easy to deal with then um so that would be my enjoyment of your flower garden yeah I like the little puttering task I'm not a big fan though of disputting all the daylilies I, I can let them do that on their own yeah yeah my neighbor my lovely old gardening neighbor used to do that every day but you know that was also part of her you know, she liked to fuss with the things and, and, you know, that was part of what she liked to do. Uh, I also think if you tuck the daylilies a little further back in the bed, 
you can't reach them anyway to deadhead them and, and you can't really see from a distance. So, you know, I, I really can be a very lazy gardener when it boils down to it. So if there's things you don't like, either get rid of that plant if it just continues to annoy you or put it further away where you can still see the flowers. But the, you know, the, the, the fact there are a few brown flowers on there doesn't bother you, you know, so it, just use your Use common sense, really, with that. Excellent point. So for one of our wrap-up questions, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you some color and flower combinations that might be favorites of yours that you recommend. And maybe I'll throw out a few um, individual plants that people find tough to combine with. So I would say the first would be your hybrid roses that kind of have that kind of, I'm going to call it naked underskirt area that needs to be covered. What do you combine with those? So I am going back to cat mint, catnip, sorry, they're not the same. You see, there's there's the, but nepeta basically is really good with roses and you basically shear it back after the first flowering and then you get a whole nother flush. You can actually, you know, an interesting one that people haven't been using, but I'm using more are the penstemons like huskers red because they will gently seed themselves in and their upright stems sort of come up through the hybrid roses so I'm, I'm loving that the other one let me think I was going to say any of the yarrows would be good so there's some really interesting so they are achillea if you want the latin but there's some really fun colors and the one I'm loving at the moment is vintage violet not surprisingly, you might like that one too. I'm really enjoying that one. And just any of the, you know, flowering bulbs, you can you can put some of the non-hardy flowering bulbs in between that really don't take up much space. So you could put dahlias between it or gladiolus back to my gladiolus again. So, and you can always plant a few spring flowering bulbs around them like tulips or daffodils for early show just so you've got something early on because they don't really look good until later in the season and how about the tall bearded iris because you know that's that's a short season of bloom but then you have that tall foliage the rest of the time so I actually but I have some that are really I've put them at the back of the flower bed so really you don't see them for a lot of the year after because they're tall enough so if they're a three-foot stem they they will the flower stem comes up. I have it actually be on one of the flower beds, sort of really behind flocks and other things that then shoot up. So you don't see them the rest of the year. So they flower, you know, like late spring, early summer. And so I've sort of hidden them at the back, which you usually don't see. And then I have some sort of off in their own area that has gravel. And I just cut the flower stalk down when they're done. And the bearded iris does need baking. The, the rhizome needs baking. So in a gravel bed, and maybe at another time we can talk about working with um, planting in gravel because it's one of my passions. So the they're just over in their own sort of area of, with gravel. And, you know, it's I just ignore it the rest of the time, really. So it doesn't really have anything that follows on. But they, they really love it over there because they just get baked by the sun and I never water them so you know they're easy care with that but I know what you mean mm -hmm. they're sort of a once and done exactly and then uh, the last one that people always ask me about is because it is a garden thug and I find is beautiful with other plants but just takes over the world and that's monarda or bee balm okay well that's interesting because then you talk to other people that can't get it going at all and the main thing is that is a water hog. Mm -hmm. So if you plant other things around it that will suck up a lot of that water, then it has to compete a little bit more or you move it to a drier area and then it will barely do anything. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the water. So if you, if you give it plenty of water, if it's down at the bottom of the downspout or something like that, you know, and use areas like that for your water loving plants. Um, but I would I would just dig up bits and give it away because it's such a great pollinator plant. The hummingbirds are on it right now out there, and um, I think it's I think it's just a great plant. So I I would I would just keep chipping away at the edges and put it uh, put some of it in a slightly drier area, and then it won't do so well. So basically, plants do well when they have exactly the conditions that they need, and if you give them slightly 
um, adverse conditions, they won't do so well. So that's really a good basic message. Yeah, I do the same with any of my very aggressive plants. I put them into something they will like a little less. So you're putting your lily of the valley into more shade than it would like. And it kind of controls it at that point. I do the same thing with mountain mint and that sort of thing. Mountain mint, I love it and hate it, but the pollinators love Mm -hmm. that plant. Yep. For sure. And so final questions are your favorite color combinations. We talked a little bit about pinks and oranges, but how about with green flowers, like a really chartreuse, Nicotiana or Dahlia? So the, the chartreuse, I actually love that. And, and it, those of you who do cut flowers, oh my goodness, uh, great in arrangements. I normally will pair that with a lavendery purple and then throw in a touch of white white or cream those three work really well together or you could go chartreuse blue and white Mm. which you know like a anything I don't know if you grow delphinium most people can't in our area but like a larkspur and Mm -hmm. um, so that will be nice so yeah those ones or you could do chartreuse bright pink and white and I find that the white and the chartreuse are almost like the key colors together there and you can throw in any other one. I mean, you know, those of you who like sort of more like holiday colors, they'll do red chartreuse and maybe a touch of white. And the white's interesting because you don't necessarily need much of it, it, but it just freshens up the chartreuse. I think that's a great point. I know some people use yellow as their kind of accent for everything, but I like the that point that white can kind of lift things up as well. Yeah. And with the yellow, What's interesting, I've spent so long thinking about colour, and as I said, everyone's opinions differ, but what I've found is that that light, what I would call a primrose yellow, is more like the light post-it note colour. Um, you know what I mean? The, the, the lighter one of the post-its, not the dark mm-hmm. yellow. That colour really works as a mixer and a mingler. The one that is hard is the Stelladora daylily colour, that brassy brassy sort of yellowy slash orange goldenrod type color yes the like a like a number two pencil or a school bus you know those are difficult to work with that that color is difficult to work with because it doesn't really go with orange it really doesn't go with red it definitely swears with pink you can use blue with it and possibly purple but it's it's a really tricky one but that light primrosey yellow that goes with pretty much anything uh, mm-hmm. Definitely the purples, definitely the blues, you know, so that one's a little easier to mix and mingle. Okay, I'm going to make a shout out to all the plant breeders and say we need more butter yellow flowers. <laughs> so we <laughs> yes. need a lot in that in that range because I know exactly what you're talking about, that really creamy, beautiful butter yellow yes. that yeah. is such a beautiful color in your interior of your home as well as, you know, flattering for people to wear. But also, again, as you say, beautiful combining with other plants. Yeah, it really is. I, and, and people don't realize how, how nice it is in the garden. As it, it's, it's fresh without being screaming. It doesn't scream at you. It's just fresh. Yeah, it's lovely. Well, it's fun. It's fun to talk about colors because, you know, and there are so many cultivars. You know, the, every year there's more different fun things you can grow. And the other thing I would say to people is I don't grow the same things particularly from seed every year because I have the favorites that I grow probably most years but then every year I try one or two new things and see whether and some years you like them and then others you're like oh I'm going back to that one you know that did better so they'll they'll you see what does well for you and what you really like Mm -hmm. and on that note how can people contact you or follow you on social media so like Kathy I love Instagram and my my girls told me I would years ago so my main site is the name of my garden north view so looking towards the north n-o-r-t-h view v-i-e-w garden one garden and then also by my name Jenny Rose Carey and they're similar but slightly different and my website is if you want to see my garden and some of my garden travels and things like that they, they'll pop up on these ones jennyrosecarey.com is my website and you can contact me through that website or uh, before you garden at gmail 
www.flowersbyjenny.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. It's been a pleasure talking about flowers with you today, and I hope to visit your garden soon. Thank you, Kathy, for inviting me. Rose Campion Plant Profile Rose Campion, Lychnis coronaria, is a favorite cottage garden perennial that has beautiful magenta flowers at the top of a tall stalk. The lower leaves are a soft textured gray-green rosette mound that is attractive most of the year. Rose Campion also comes in a white flowering version that is equally as lovely. It is short-lived and may not bloom during its first year. Rose Campion is hardy to USDA zones four through eight. It originates in the Mediterranean region and has naturalized to many other regions. It prefers dry, rocky hillsides and full sun, but can also grow well in normal garden conditions. It reseeds itself prolifically, unless you cut off the seed heads at the end of the growing season. It is drought tolerant and deer resistant. The only maintenance needed is to cut back the finished flowers to encourage more flowering during the growing season. Rose Campion is often mixed up with lamb's ear as they both have fuzzy silver foliage, but the flowers are very different. Lamb's ears normally have a tall spike of purple flowers that bloom in succession up the stalk. Rose Campion you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, over at the community garden plot, we finally pulled the carrots that we planted in March and we have a nice harvest. I think I'll be able to actually make a carrot cake from them. I'm still picking off of my thornless blackberry and we pulled the last of the garlic out and are curing that now in my sunroom. We also started new bean seeds and a heirloom pumpkin and added in more okra and hopefully we'll be able to harvest from them through September into October. In my home garden, Things are growing by leaps and bounds thanks to all the recent rains we've had. So I'm just in the weeding and cutting back phase of gardening right now and trying to still get the last of my containers potted up and put together. I'm also attending a local Azalea Society uh, cutting workshop tomorrow and hopefully having some more azaleas to add to my garden. In other local gardening events at the U.S. Botanic Garden, there is a workshop coming up on growing outdoor fruit trees, and that's 10.30 a.m. It's free, but you do have to register for it at usbg.gov, and I believe that is online, not in person. Another upcoming event that's online that you might want to check out is Ask the Experts About Mandavia. That's noon on Friday the 22nd, and that is put on by the National Garden Bureau. You can learn out more about that at ngb.org. And over at Hillwood Museum, that same day, Friday the 22nd, is Asian-inspired virtual floral design. And there is a fee for non-members, but if you're a Hillwood member, it's free for you. You do have to register. And that's more on the floral uh, arrangement side of things than the growing things. And the Master Gardeners of Northern Virginia, that same day, Friday the 22nd, are putting on a virtual talk that I think many of us might want to tune into. And that's free. Again, you do need to register for that. And that's MG. NV, mastergardenersnorthernvirginia.org, what's eating my, insert the blank here, cucumbers, tomatoes, eggplant, beans, and squash. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. Happy gardening.
In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.